Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. My name's Rick Samprin. We reflect on the inaugural National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Food prices are going up again. Canada and China remain at odds. And YouTube is blocking all anti-vax content. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. This is National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, ET Canada is going to be presenting a half-hour special. ET Canada presents artists and icons, Indigenous entertainers in Canada. It's going to shine a light on a number of uh, talented Indigenous artists and filmmakers and uh, help to share their stories. So look for that on uh, ET Canada. We're doing a number of um, truth and reconciliation-related interviews today to shine a spotlight on why this day is incredibly important to listen, to learn, and to ultimately act to make this nation a better place for one and all. Angela Belgard is a fourth-generation survivor of the residential school system and Indigenous lead with Our Kids Network. Angela, good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on today. What are you thinking about today? You know, for me, this is a day about my family. Um, as you mentioned, I'm a fourth-generation residential school survivor, and that means that three generations before me have gone to residential school. Um, so I'm really thinking about them and what it means to them and how they're feeling. But I'm also thinking about what everybody else in Canada is thinking, because it is a very important day to learn more, as you say. What are the stories that they shared with you? Well, you know, my family has shared mostly positive stories. Um, they have chosen to look at uh, the good, the sports, the um, music that they learned. But with those stories, are always the grief. You can see the pain. You can hear the racism that they faced and just how difficult it was to be away from their families for quite a big part of, uh, of their lives. It's great that we finally have a national day for truth and reconciliation where we can pause and reflect and, uh, you know, for me and uh, I'm sure many of our listeners learn about what has happened and uh, learn from the mistakes of the past. But in saying that, there's still a lot of work and a lot of healing to do as well, right? Absolutely. And that is one of the reasons why I'm so pleased that Call to Action number 80 um, has been put uh, in place in this day that This is a day for all of us to heal. This is about all Canadians. And certainly the survivors and their families have to heal from the past and the pain. And, you know, you have to remember that every Indigenous person in Canada has been impacted by the residential school system. So just think about that for a moment. Every Indigenous person. Um, so, yeah, we have healing to do on our side, but I think uh, all, of, all of Canada has some healing to do because if they really learn and are deeply impacted by this information, they will feel a number of things, grief, anger, and disbelief, and that's part of the healing process. Very much so. Angela Belgard is an Indigenous lead with Our Kids Network and a fourth-generation survivor of the residential school system, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. What do you recommend people do today, the, the, the non-Indigenous population? W- what advice do you have for them on how they should be thinking about what has happened? Well, 
take part in something. If you are fortunate to have the day uh, off, don't use it as a day off. Use it as a day to go and learn more. Participate in something in your community because I can guarantee you there is something happening. This is a national-wide movement. I think the discovery of the bodies have, uh, in Tecumloops, sick to Swebquip, I think that has made... Uh, shine a light on this nationally so go and learn more there is something happening in your community partake listen deeply understand and connect with what you're learning and then do something more Um, much has been made about the ontario government not making today a provincial statutory holiday Um, basically the government has said it's critical for the province's two million kids to be in school learning about reconciliation was that the right move I would disagree with that move. I think that it should be a a larger day with the number of people impacted by this, the need for survivors to heal, the need to make this country um, better and more equitable and built on mutual respect and understanding. This is totally the day to do it, and I think it should have been a a day for everybody to have the opportunity to go out and learn and do more. But I am grateful that the children of this generation are actually learning in school about uh, Canada's past and its recent past. And that's important. And that's, uh, you know, a good point, because when I went to school and, uh, you know, we're talking early 80s to, you know, early 90s, uh, we didn't learn about this stuff. And I, you know, I missed out on something and I missed out on the tragedy of the past and trying to make a better future. And I, I just there's there's a little emptiness there. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, Rick. I would totally agree with you. I, um, as well, did not learn of this stuff in school. It was until university, and then I realized that all of my dad's stories were actually real, and he wasn't doing that. I walked both ways to school uh, in a (laughs) blizzard uphill both ways. That These are really true, and I had apologized to him, and I opened up my heart and really began to learn and understand. And that is a tragedy, because we tend to learn a lot about other Um, countries and what happens there and not focus on what really happened here and this is this is now you know we talk about it as as the country's past but it's not it is now because as i say every indigenous person has been impacted by the indian residential schools and that means if you whether you know it or not you are probably working or dealing with or you know you have clients or you know somebody who has been impacted by this system. Angela Belgard is our guest. Angela is a fourth-generation survivor of the residential school system and Indigenous lead with Our Kids Network. Um, what is Our Kids Network? Tell us a little bit about that. Our Kids Network is a fantastic organization in the Halton region who's really committed to helping children and youth thrive. We're a connector organization. It's a network of over 80 um, unique community organizations that are doing research and developing resources to help those professionals working with children and youth and their families um, to do better and to learn more. And uh, yeah, it's just we are in such a unique unique position to build some Indigenous literacy um, resources for uh, everybody. That's amazing. Angela, thanks for all you do. Um, We'll be reflecting throughout the day today. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Rick. Angela Belgard, fourth generation survivor of the residential school system and uh, Indigenous lead with Our Kids Network. And she mentioned there is 
a host of things and events to do today, and uh, I'll list a few things throughout the morning, including uh, an event at McMaster University's Indigenous Studies Program in the Indigenous Research Institute. It uh, begins at 10 a.m. It's a one-hour event today, and it can also be streamed live. So maybe just Google McMaster University's Indigenous Studies Program or the Indigenous Research Institute, and you can partake in that. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. We're talking about food. Everyone's favorite topic because, well, we like to munch on things. We've got to keep our, our bodies replenished with the nutrients that we need. Uh, however, it is getting a little bit more pricier at uh, the grocery store, and uh, we're going to analyze some of the numbers that have been crunched by the Dalhousie University's Agri-Food Analytics Lab. The director of that lab and a professor at Dalhousie University in food distribution and policy is Sylvain Charlebois, and Sylvain joins us now. Good morning, Sylvain. How are you? Good morning. Good. How are you? I'm okay. So basically this uh, report that you've compiled after surveying more than 10,000 Canadians about food prices and how they're responding to those prices shows that uh, we're not in a very good mood because these prices are going up. That's right. Yeah. I, I think uh, based on our, on uh, our findings, I think a lot of people have noticed that prices are going up uh Everywhere in the in the grocery store, really, eighty six percent of Canadians have actually noticed that prices have gone up in the last six months. Uh, boomers at ninety three percent—that's basically everyone, really. <laughs> and uh, but the younger generations, uh, they're under uh, they're under seventy percent, which is interesting because uh, you seem. Well, everyone is aware that uh, prices are going up, but perhaps some generations are accepting uh, their fate, I guess, because we've been we've had access to really affordable foods for a very long time for for quite a few decades in Canada. Things are shifting right now. And and our, our belief is that the younger generations are actually accepting the fact that 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 our food economics are are just different now than just uh, back in the 80s or 90s. And is that factor because the younger generation obviously wasn't accustomed to those lower prices years ago? I think so. Everything is relative, right? So people uh, who are uh, going into the workforce, uh, I mean, the Generation Zs, many of them are still with their parents, so they're probably not even buying food, so they wouldn't be aware of the cost. But millennials, I mean, the youngest millennials are 26 now. Uh, so most of them are out. Uh, they're living on their own. Uh, many of them have kids. So once you have kids, obviously you <laughs> look at prices much more carefully. Mm-hmm. So you can see that really different generations are looking at food prices uh, differently, essentially. So what are the uh, most notable price spikes? What is the most expensive nowadays? Uh, meat, by far. Mm-hmm. I mean, meat is the one place where most people have noticed that prices have gone up, uh, and when you look at uh, when you look at the data, clearly meat is 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 quite problematic. Uh, beef is up ten to twelve percent, depending of the cut you're looking at. Uh, chicken is actually up more than ten percent, which is really bizarre because chicken is. A very stable meat uh, when it comes to prices. Typically, you should 
expect two, three percent a year. That's not that's not what's happening really. And uh, so it's up ten percent, and 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 pork is actually up about five percent. So it doesn't matter what you like at the meat counter; you're likely paying more now. The other part of the grocery store which has been affected by food inflation this year is the center of the store, the groceries, the the non-perishables, the canned goods. Those products have gone up because of of transportation costs, because of labor costs. There's more processing involved. And so inflation really has hit that center of the store quite hard this year. So it's not really a supply and demand issue. It's all the other stuff in between. No, whenever I hear, uh, oh, this is about supply and demand, I cringe because actually when you look at (laughs) food prices, uh, supply and demand is a very, very, uh, it's it's unconsequential. Basically, Mm -hmm. it's a factor, but it's not really the driving factor. Grocers will basically set prices based on what the market can bear. You you have eighteen to twenty thousand different food products in the store and every single food product will compete against other food products. Let's go back to the meat counter. Beef will compete against chicken right. and chicken will compete against pork. So it doesn't matter if you have a lot of chicken or not enough chicken it really boils down to how prices are compared with other competitive uh, competing uh, substitutes, I guess. Uh, we're running out of time, but I do want to reflect on shrinkflation as well, which uh, the, the uh, survey looked at. Uh, and it's not necessarily that things are more expensive, but we're getting a lot less of it. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, we've been talking about shrinkflation for many years uh, as a lab, but uh, we wanted to know whether or not Canadians are noticing <laughs> any shrinkflation. And they are like three Canadians out of four are actually noticing uh, that shrinkflation is a thing. It's actually happening. Uh, and, and shrinkflation, uh, if you don't know what it is, it's, it's simply it's about reducing quantities of a product without uh, without reducing the price, essentially. So you would get 15 cookies instead of 18, or you, you get 400 grams instead of 500 grams for for a certain product, but the price doesn't change. That's that's true inflation, and more, more and more people are actually noticing. Yeah, soon we'll have you know one cookie for the same price, and uh, shrinkflation will uh, really drive us bonkers. Uh, Sylvain, really, <laughs> really appreciate the yeah. time today. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Sylvain. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. How badly has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted retirement goals for Canadians? We're going to dive into a survey by the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. The past president is Michel Saint-Germain, and he joins us now. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine, Rick. And is, is it Michel or Michael? Michel. Michel. So... Are we going to be working until we're all 95? Uh, no, but uh, <laughs> we're probably going to be working a bit later than we are now. Uh, actually, if you look at the numbers over the last few years, there has been an increase in retirement age. That is the age at which people uh, stop working. So the trend is upward. And I need to say this. Canada is a bit behind other countries. We don't work as late as the Scandinavian country, Denmark, and more importantly, Japan. In Japan, people work until their 70s, and they seem to be doing well. 
Interesting. So a study done for the Canadian Institute of Actuaries finds nearly 25% of non-retired Canadians say the pandemic has messed up their retirement timeline. That's a lot of people, including, I would imagine, a lot of baby boomers. Well, you use the word messed up. Uh, I would not use this word. So the the pandemic is going to change a lot of things. Um, And, for example, interest rates will be much lower, much longer than anticipated. And with lower interest rate, there'll be lower investment income for retirees. Hence, they need to replace that reduction in income by something else. That can be done by working later. Uh, And furthermore, I think pandemic will change the way we work. We can work from home. We can be a lot more flexible. And it's going to be a lot easier for older people to remain in the workforce longer. Not surprisingly, people will adjust and, again, will work longer. That's a good point. The survey also found that 14% of Canadians say they did not expect to ever retire. That seems like a pretty high number. Well, it is. Uh, I hate to see bus drivers and pilots age 90, uh, Rick. Uh, I don't think I will fly on such a plane. Uh, (laughs) the, The reality, another thing that the survey indicates is that people tend to underestimate uh, life expectancy. People will live into their 90s in the future. And when you're in your 90s, believe me, uh, it's getting more and more difficult to work. Perhaps you can be a radio announcer like you in your 90s, but again, (laughs) a lot of jobs are not available to 90s-year-old. Yes, I'm on the Freedom 95 plan, so it's working out for me so far. How much money does someone need to retire? I know everyone's different, but what is there a baseline? Well, it varies very much with with income. Uh, I think a sort of a benchmark, if you want $50,000 of income in addition with uh, government benefits, you need to save close to a million dollars to to live with it. Um, needs at retirement is something difficult. Uh, to define. Uh, A lot of people, especially as they grow older and older, uh, may rely entirely on government benefits. Government benefits, if you add CPP and OAS, um, do provide a good floor. Uh, On the other hand, if if as you grow older, you want to maintain the same level of expenses as when you were younger, you want to travel a lot, et cetera, et cetera, um, then you may need a million dollars for the average uh, income Canadian. We're chatting with Michel Saint-Germain, past president of the Canadian Institute of Actuaries, about a study done for that uh, institution that finds nearly 25% of non-retired Canadians say the pandemic has uh, delayed their retirement timeline, or at least impacted it. What happens if you run out of savings? Are you just, you, you have to rely, obviously, on what the government provides, I guess. Actually, we do have a question on this. Uh, and Canadians are reasonably comfortable uh, in what I would call plan B. What if suddenly you'd use your capital and you don't have any? Uh, many would be willing to rely simply on government benefits. Others will use the capital that they have accumulated in their houses. And, and as you know, housing prices have increased significantly. And a surprising number of them will say, well, if I run out of money, I'll go back to work. So, you know, Keynesians are concerned about this risk but they seem to think that, uh, no, no, we're going to cope um, about it. Other ways of, of doing it is leaving less money to their children 
or relying on their children to survive. Interesting stuff, Michelle. We'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you, Rick. Michelle Saint-Germain is the past president of the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. Joining us here, other findings of this study, 69% of respondents say they or their spouse will have to work longer than planned because they need the income. Yes, the pandemic has certainly, well, as I say, messed up people's timeline. Uh, Michelle has, uh, you know, a different phrase for it. At the end of the day, uh, whether it's delayed or messed up, uh, we're looking at, uh, I guess, a longer retirement plan for some, not all, but for some people uh, who are listening to this program. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Chinese tech giant Huawei could soon be on the outside looking in when it comes to Canada's next-gen 5G wireless networks. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says his government is going to decide on the company's involvement with the technology in a few weeks and says major telecommunication companies already have started to remove Huawei from their networks. Obviously, as we uh, develop our plan for governing, as we pull together our positioning, um, this will have an impact. And uh, we look forward to uh, sharing a decision on on many different issues, including on uh, telecommunications and Huawei uh, in the coming weeks. Let's bring in Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Relations at Carleton University, a former national security analyst for CSIS, and the author of a new book called Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. Good morning, Stephanie. Good morning. Well, the PM says they're weighing their options on Huawei. What are those options? (laughs) Well, actually, there's a number of options. It's not just accept or ban. It is, um, you know, they could actually put in a series of regulations, so trying to engage in Uh, what you might call a layered security approach or risk management approach. So there are a number of options available. That being said, I do believe that there is um, substantial pressure from the United States to ban Huawei. And in addition, I strongly suspect that they are going to be, um, you know, there's not a lot of popularity for Huawei, I think, in Canada right now. So if they do choose to ban, um, that's probably not going to come without consequence. Um, from China, but I think it would be a popular domestic decision. Uh, You kind of referenced that Canada is a member of Five Eyes, an international uh, intelligence operation that includes the U.S. as well as the U.K., uh, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, All of them except for Canada have already banned Huawei's 5G network, so this is more than just an internal decision, obviously. Yeah, I mean... (sighs) It isn't. It, it's funny. It isn't. It isn't. Like, I mean, it, it's one of these decisions where I think there is a lot of interest from Five Eyes and actually even beyond the Five Eyes. I mean, I'm here in Ottawa and often um, I'll have embassy staff contact me from from Europe, from other countries, and they're really interested in what Canada is going to do. Uh, so it's not just the Five Eyes looking to us. I think a number of other countries want to know what we're going to do as well because of our relations with the United States, but because, you know, they're trying to figure out their policy. So it's kind of a weird, I'm going to use a terrible term and call it intermestic. <laughs> That's a terrible word, but it's, it's both international and domestic. It's intermestic decision that has to be made. A number of factors really have to be taken into consideration. But it really did surprise me the level of international interest in our decision. In saying that, if Canada says yes to Huawei, does that set a precedent for other countries to say, all right, we'll do it as well? Yeah, I think it might. Um, there are, uh, you know, I don't want to say like, you know, like, like, 
like they're, they're, I don't think it's going to be the end of the world if we do accept it. But I think other countries are trying to figure out what to do simply because they also have relations with China. And, you know, I wouldn't surprise me like if a country bans Huawei or, you know, displeases China, as we've seen multiple times now, there are going to be retaliations, uh, particularly economic ones. So, you know, I would anticipate here in Canada, you would have like agricultural um, restrictions. I mean, every time we do something that makes China angry, they ban canola oil, they ban pork, they ban certain, you know, uh, they may go for the lobsters, they may even like target a Canadian tech company. Um, and a lot of countries do need infrastructure. And the problem with Huawei, if it can be called that, and I think it can, um, is that it's very cheap, right? So you're dealing with a technology uh, that's advanced, and because it's effectively subsidized by the Chinese state, it's very cheap. So a lot of countries want to have their cake and eat it, too. They want cheap infrastructure. They want cheap 5G. But they also want security. So I think you're looking to see if, you know, there is a kind of third option that would be available. That being said, I'm not sure that third option is the best option for Canada. Stephanie Carvin is our guest, former National Security Analyst for CSIS, Associate Professor of International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Relations at Carleton University, also the author of a new book called Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. And on the security uh, aspect of it, there is a big concern about potentially allowing China through Huawei to infiltrate our electrical grid, uh, perhaps put a bug in somewhere, uh, listen in on conversations that shouldn't be listened in on. Is that a legitimate concern? Yes, uh, yes and no. So I think one of the issues that we have here is a lot of people think that if we just ban Huawei, that our 5G is going to be secure. And that's not the reality. The reality is all of this equipment is pretty buggy. Um, and there's a lot of um, insecurities in this. And this is a real concern for our critical infrastructure. So I think, you know, yes, there is a concern that China could use Huawei to spy on us. But, I mean, they don't need it. They can spy on us right now. Like, they're literally hacking us right now. They don't need Huawei to do this. They can hack us through our email, through whatever, right? Like, they, they can do it in a much cheaper way than, than installing 5G infrastructure everywhere. So I think that concern is overblown. Um, I think, you know, if, if we even if we go with other companies, we do really have to still use a layer security approach, and we still have to force these companies to ensure that their products are secure and up-to-date and not vulnerable, because right now they all kind of are. In my view, the bigger risk of Huawei is what it represents, okay? So there's a reason we talk about Nortel in the past tense. Um, Nortel, of course, was a very famous telecommunications company here in Canada that went bust. I mean, it wasn't, the allegations is that it was hacked and things like that, and that's probably true. But, I mean, um, also it had a lot of mismanagement. But the fact is, a company like Huawei is not a state-owned company, but it's a state-championed company. And when we saw Huawei, you know, the Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou return home from China, I mean, from Canada to China last week, and we saw, you know, the flags, and she's saying, you know, if there is hope, it is, uh, the color of hope is China red. You know, I mean, the, the relations between Huawei and China are just so strong. And so, 
we can't treat Chinese tech companies like they're normal companies, right? They, they aren't official arms of the state, but they are absolutely achieving state ends. And as a result of that, they get unlimited resources of the state. And so my big concerns with Chinese companies isn't necessarily the hacking dimension. It's more the fact that they are monopolistic. They're trying to undermine competition. They have market skewing effects. And so I'm less worried about the cyber aspect of it, and I'm much more worried about the economic national security dimension. And that's a much more subtle and hard thing to kind of wrap our head around. For years and years and years, we've been telling governments, stay out of the economy, stay out of the economy. And all of a sudden, we have these new challenges from state-owned enterprises, particularly from China, and state-championed enterprises. And we suddenly realized we need the government to kind of regulate their presence in our economy. And this is a huge challenge for the next couple of years. Very much so. We'll have to leave it there because we're out of time. Stephanie, appreciate the time and good luck with the book as well. Thank you so much. That's Stephanie Carvin joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Lots more to come. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Commemorating the inaugural National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Great to see some of the top trending topics on Twitter. Those hashtags, including Every Child Matters, Truth and Reconciliation, Orange Shirt Day 2021, Residential Schools, First Nations, National Day, all the top trending topics on Twitter. And that's what this day is all about. It's it's listening, it's learning, it's sharing. It is looking to what happened in the past and trying to make this place a better place for everyone. An Alberta Indigenous leader says that Canadians are understanding the truth about residential schools, and she's hopeful real reconciliation can begin. Her name is Marlene Poitras. She's the Regional Chief of Alberta for the Assembly of First Nations, and says it took until this year for Canadians to believe the stories Indigenous peoples were telling about unmarked graves of children. Nobody believed them. Nobody did anything and until they found the first 215 bodies of those children, you know, um, then then the truth started coming out. Now we have over 6,000 bodies that were found. And she's urging people to seek out more information on residential schools. The first place that people can look is reading the Truth and Reconciliation Report. I, I know it's a lengthy document, but it, but it has stories of survivors and what they witnessed. And she's also saying that... Um, It's a long read, but people who want a better understanding should check out the stories in the Truth and Reconciliation Report. We know there are more than 90 recommendations, but it's important to, you know, read over that document. There's also a 2020 or 2012 film called We Were Children. It's a hard, it's a hard film to watch, but it gives you, it'll give you an idea of um, some of the atrocities that those children suffered in, in these institutions. It's also an important day to have a discussion with our children about residential schools. But how exactly should we be doing that? Kelly Butsalis is a freelance writer who has had pieces in The New York Times, Refinery29, Mashable, and a whole lot more, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Kelly. 
Good morning. You wrote an article earlier this week on how parents can talk to kids about residential schools. And in that piece, you describe a chat that you had with your daughter about a bunch of tiny shoes at an art gallery. Can you share that experience with our listeners? Sure thing. I went with my family to the AGO and uh, my daughter is seven and my son is five. And, you know, we had already you know, as adults, we knew what was going on, but my daughter hadn't really seen anything in my son had it either. And then we stumbled upon a memorial in the middle of the AGO. And, you know, we were just about to leave and I had to take her aside and answer some of her questions about why are those shoes there? What do they mean? What does it mean that you know, these, uh, these children didn't come home. How did they die? And, I, you know, I was really thrown into the moment and didn't realize I would be having that conversation with her at that time. So when a child asks their parents, whether it's today or in the days or weeks to come, what happened in Canada's residential schools, how should parents tackle that discussion? Um, I got a lot of good advice in that Mashable article, like uh, stay calm. And I really appreciated the advice that, you know, you can apologize if you don't have the exact wording that you want to say, but never apologize for your tears. Um, And understand that it is a very hard concept for a child to understand that there are graves at a school or that children would die at school. And so depending on the level of your child's understanding, you know, you have to approach it with simple uh, language and always leave the door open for more discussions. And yeah, I mean, you can always tie it to a lot of the There's a lot of examples you can open the door with, like uh, there's the animated show Molly of Denali. um, And there are many, many books out there that um, you can read with your child to open that door and open that conversation. Uh, The Ontario government, while not making today a stat holiday, says it does plan to add Indigenous learning for grades one to three. I, I never learned about residential schools when I went to school. And, uh, you know, there, there's a there's a hole there in terms of my education. But obviously we are learning a lot about uh, what happened. Um, that should be a plus, you know, uh, teaching our kids at least from grades one to three about what happened. That's, that, that's a good starting point, I would think. Absolutely. I mean, I grew up on the Six Nations Reserve, and so we had the Mohawk Institute right next door to us the entire time. So, you know, we our education um, featured that. We learned about that history because we were in on-reserve schools, but 100% schools across the country should learn about what happened in our history. Well, Kelly, uh, great story. Thanks for sharing it with us. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we all have a story to either hear or tell, and I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Kelly Butzalis, freelance writer who has had pieces in The New York Times, Mashable, Refinery29, reflecting on a recent occurrence where uh, her daughter asked a question after seeing a bunch of tiny shoes at the Art Gallery of Ontario and uh, basically uh, pulled her mom aside to say, hey, what's going on? And, you know, that forced that conversation. Uh, A lawyer specializing in child protection, meantime, says Indigenous families are still dealing with a modern iteration 
of the residential school system. We get that story from Global's Toby Kerr. It's just ongoing racism discrimination. Roslyn Chambers is a co-founder and partner of Chambers Caldwell Law Firm in Vancouver. She got into the field after dealing with the child protection system in her own life and seeing what she views as a deeply harmful double standard when it comes to the way Indigenous families are treated. There's a higher standard, sometimes an unreasonable standard, that are put on Aboriginal families. It's okay for sort of a non-Indigenous family to maybe, you know, have uh, beers at the barbecue and the kids are running around. But if that was an Indigenous family, that could be a cause for concern. Chambers says the system is designed so that a child can be taken away quickly, but it's much more difficult to reunite a family. She's emphasizing the impact that seeing so many parents rendered powerless has on the next generation of Indigenous kids. Toby Kerr, Global News. Our Twitter poll question today at AM900CHML. Should Ontario make the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation a provincial stat holiday? 72% say yes, 28% say no. You can vote now on Twitter at AM900CHML. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900CHML. Hey, YouTube is banning vaccine misinformation and conspiracy theories from its video sharing platform. The video sharing tech platform has announced immediate bans on false claims that vaccines are dangerous and can cause health issues like autism, cancer or infertility. YouTube also deleted accounts belonging to some of the most notable propagators of vaccine misinformation and conspiracy theories. The ban on misinformation extends to all immunizations approved by health authorities and currently being administered. Public health officials have struggled to respond to the steady current of online misinformation about the COVID-19 vaccine since development got underway last year. I'm Ben Thomas. Joining us now is Carmi Levy, tech analyst, and we say good morning to Carmi. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Great. Great to be here. Um, well, Facebook and Twitter kind of did this long ago. Why did YouTube wait so long? I wish I had the answer to that. I mean, Facebook uh, you know, pulled, the, pulled the, the trigger on their anti-vax process technology back in February. Uh, and then Twitter uh, followed suit in March. And they've been kind of actively working to remove both uh, anti-vaccine related misinformation as well as the accounts that share it. Uh, so why YouTube, which of course is owned by Google, would wait this long is uh, kind of the big question that everyone is asking. I'm glad they finally decided to go ahead with it, but we're in the middle of a pandemic, you know, waiting over half a year to do so is to me somewhat slow and somewhat irresponsible given the resources that YouTube has to address this problem. They've got deep pockets. They've got thousands of engineers to work on this. They could have moved quicker. Very much so. YouTube also banning channels associated with several prominent anti-vaccine activists. So they're not just blocking or banning videos, but they're going after the people who are spreading them out there as well. Exactly. If all you do is remove uh, content, then really what you're doing is you're addressing the symptom, not the cause. Uh, What you have to do is you have to target those who spread it and basically kill it at source. Uh, and then that significantly reduces the spread of misinformation. We've seen research from all social media companies, particularly Facebook, that shows uh, that a disproportionately small percentage of people are responsible for a relatively large amount of misinformation, including anti-vaccine misinformation. So if you kind of get them, uh, you can do a, a you know some significant damage to the entire misinformation process and really cut down on the amount of that kind of traffic that's flowing across the 
the entire platform. It really is effective. Social media has certainly been hit with a lot of public pressure to take action against misinformation, fake news, and not just vaccine-related. Um, who's doing it the best? Uh, it's a good question. It's it, it's one of those, you know, it, it, lots of gray, not a whole lot of black and white. And quite frankly, I don't think the entire industry is doing it well. The, the very fact that Facebook was the first one to announce its initiative, uh, I'll give them points for that and I'll put them near the top of the leaderboard. But the truth of the matter is, is we're never going to get to a point where we can say, you know, this particular company is ahead of the others or this one is the best or we have solved the problem. This is an ongoing issue. Uh, just as Facebook and Twitter and YouTube introduce new uh, processes and technologies, artificial intelligence, machine learning, they hire people to deal with this. Those who would spread misinformation, uh, they're not just going to fold up their tents and go home. They're figuring out ways around the bands. They're figuring out ways to get their content onto YouTube without it being flagged as anti-vaccine misinformation. Uh, it's it's a never-ending game of cops and robbers. Uh, and unfortunately, the robbers uh, simply have no intention of stopping this. And so it'll continue and it'll be an ongoing battle. And you'll probably see you know, at various points, Facebook will introduce something that's notable and then YouTube will follow suit and we'll always be seeing new technologies, new processes, new approaches, but uh, we'll probably never see this go away. That's unfortunate, but it's just the reality we live in. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton is Carmi Levy, tech analyst. We're chatting about YouTube announcing that it will scrub all vaccine misinformation from its platform. Are we one step closer or any closer to a social media police department, if you will? God, I hope not. <laughs> you know, so, the, I mean, the truth of the matter is, is, is whenever a company like YouTube makes an announcement like this, the first thing that that happens is, is they get accused of being censors. They get accused of, you know, essentially being draconian. You're removing my freedom of expression. You're removing my uh, ability to share what I want. This is not freedom at all. Uh, and you know, it's again, this is another one of those shades of gray kinds of discussion. On the one hand. Uh, companies like YouTube have a responsibility to ensure that misinformation, uh, offensive content, damaging content, because let's face it, anti-vaccine misinformation can kill people, uh, does not have an opportunity to, to propagate, to spread on its platform. On the other hand, uh, you and I do have a, a right enshrined in our constitution of free expression. Uh, and so where does my right to freely express myself end? And when do I cross that line into misinformation? Uh, when should I be censured by those platforms? Uh, there's no there's no agreement and not everyone agrees on where that line should be. And of course, if you're the one spreading the misinformation, any constraints on your activities, uh, you're not going to be happy with. So, you know, this th this argument will probably never end. We'll probably all they'll probably always be subject to uh, accusations that they're censoring governments when they introduce regulations uh, will be accused of the same thing. Um, but the reality is there's you know, we, we we weren't born with a right to share content on YouTube. It's their playground. They're welcome to do whatever they wish with it. If we break the rules, there have got to be some consequences. In saying that, we only have about a minute here. Can we envision one day of some kind of, I don't know, international or North American Internet uh, commission that kind of regulates what is allowable? Uh, I, I, 
I think we're already on the road toward that. We often see the European Union leading with uh, guidance and regulation on uh, online best practice, data, privacy, stewardship, uh, misinformation, and things like that. And then uh, American big tech companies will follow suits, and then American legislators will introduce laws as well. And so it, we, we already, to a certain extent, have an international approach to it. There isn't an international body, but there is a much greater degree of cooperation between technology companies, governments, and government agencies to ensure that, that, you know, that we're not looking at this as a national challenge. We're looking at this as a global challenge, and we're partnering much better today than we were even a couple of years ago. So we're heading in the right direction. We may not actually have a building with a global name on it, but that doesn't really matter. That global cooperation is already in process. Carmi, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it, Rick. Thank you. Carmi Levy, tech analyst, chatting with us about uh, YouTube announcing it's scrubbing all vaccine misinformation from its platform. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.